Hey yo, what's up everybody? This is the Firecracker, straight from Atlanta, Georgia. This is a little verse I put together for the Dopey Nation. I kept it short for Dave. Yo man, this don't matter if you're sober or you're high. As long as you're in that, in that fight, man. We all feel you, we know where you've been. We've been there, we are there, we love you. Yeah, little verse, you know what I'm saying, for the dopey. Stay strong, uh, yo. 16, right here, yo. Huh, this is the firecracker. I'm reporting to you live. Doesn't matter if you're sober or just sorta getting high. This is a message filled with hope and patience. I hope you make it. Being sober is amazing. Shout out to the dopey nation. Can't give out my whole location. Hashtag anonymous. I'm in the depths of 12 steps. Searching for the promises. Tomorrow is a vision. Why is it so blurry? I'ma find my way home. I'ma don't worry to the ones still lost. Please take this as a warning. Got sober so I'm dry. But outside is still storming. Every relapse from a weed sack. I'm stepping like my knee steps. Pray that I get this, I forget this, I don't need that I see that, I need to say goodbye to my party days Mostly fun and partly pain, word up to Artie Lang Stay strong Dave, keep carrying the message From New York to Georgia, you are such a fucking blessing Can't forget Chris when I scribble down these doodles We miss you homie, R.I.P. fucking toodles Yeah, firecracker, you know what I mean? A little bit of dope, yeah, dopey nation Uh, uh, yeah this episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. They're located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake. And Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to create a place where addicts and alcoholics are treated with connection and compassion and not control. That's their mission. They have many, many decades of experience treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They want to make sure that you have a good experience getting well at Aloe and the people that I know that have been there have had good experiences. They love the amenities, the sweat lodge, the sound bath meditation, the surfing, the equine therapy. If you're fucked and you want to get better, I highly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our good friends at Soberlink. At Soberlink, somebody cares about your recovery. Unfortunately, relapse is so common, especially when it comes to alcohol, because it is widely available and highly prevalent in many social settings, which is why having true accountability and a deterrent from drinking is so important for staying sober. Soberlink has been empowering and helping people with alcohol use disorder since 2011 and is trusted by hundreds of treatment facilities. The Soberlink system consists of a portable handheld device that documents proof of sobriety in real time, keeping you connected to your family, friends, sponsor, treatment professional, recovery coach, or anyone else who worries about your well-being. As an exclusive offer to our listeners, email info at soberlink.com and mention Dopey for $50 off your device. Do it for that someone who cares. Let Dopey help them to stay off of the sauce. You go to soberlink.com slash Dopey and you'll get the 50 bucks off your device. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the greatest yerba mate beverage in the world, 
clean cause. They are an amazing company. The drink is delicious, but even more importantly, they put 50% of their profits to help addicts. And if you want to know about Yerba Mate, it is a delicious, citrusy, sparkling beverage. They are certified USDA organic and offer low and zero calorie options with over 160 milligrams of naturally sourced caffeine, which is an amazing pick me up. It is simply better caffeine. Use the code dopey for 15% off your next order from cleancause.com. This stuff is good. They're giving away scholarships willy-nilly, over a million bucks to help addicts get well. Support them at cleancause.com and use that code dopey for 15% off your next order. This episode of Dopey, most importantly, is brought to you by you guys in the Dopey Nation through the power of Patreon. Patreon is hitting a, a new a new level, a new plateau of entertainment. We just dropped the first well, the the sort of pseudo pilot of Good Morning Dopey on Patreon looks good, well lit, nice set with the first ever accompanying news footage to a Dopey voicemail. So go to Patreon, check it out. When you guys support Patreon, it is incredibly helpful to the show. It's www.patreon.com slash Dopey Podcast. We also have crazy gear available at dopeypodcast.com. Look for new shit coming any second. And speaking of new shit, I have so many different trucker hats right now. I'm thinking about going to a fucking truck stop and selling them. Buy the trucker hats. We got the good so bad truckers. We got the fucking uh, dopey nation dead truckers. We've got trucker hats every color of the rainbow we have the old classic dopey snapbacks we got oive snapbacks and we got stickers just venmo me and i will uh hook it up anyway enough with the ads here is the show Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and other dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and I'm on Long Island, joined by my friend. Do we call you TJ or Butchie for the show? TJ. TJ. Yes. Why? Um, I guess that's what I'm in the Dopey Zoom at. I know, but how did you get... First of all, I've known... How long have I known you? Um, You're sober six years, so longer than six years. Let me ask you that. Before that... Happy Dopey Day. Yes. Yesterday was a Dopey Day. Let's... Huh? Right? And uh, how did you celebrate Dopey Day? What did you do to observe the day of the dope? Well, I went to the Dopey Marathon a couple of times. I checked in on the marathon a couple of times, which was good. And I dopeyed my eyes on Instagram and Facebook. Any, re- any response? Yeah, I got like um, 18 likes on Facebook. Nice. Uh, a majority of people who are not in Dopey. Uh, I used Katie B's text that she put out that we explained what Dopey Day was and who Chris was, and uh, I copied that to mine. So now, before we even go any further, a lot of the audience probably isn't very familiar with Dopey Zoom because I don't talk about Dopey Zoom that much, and and you are a uh, a pillar of the Dopey Zoom community. So why don't you just let the Dopey Nation, other than the Zoom people, know about you know Dopey Zoom? Why you like it? Oh, uh, just a cog in the wheel. I am. Not a pillar, but... Just a cog in the wheel I am. That's it. Um, Dopey Zoom, it's 
you know, whether you're in, you're an NA or an AA or a whatever A, or whether you're in recovery or not in recovery, or you're curious about it, it's it's a it's a comforting, it's a safe place to come and talk about our addictions and our re- recovery. Um, and the meetings are, are more than daily. We have multiple meetings every day. This past weekend, though, in celebration of Chris's birthday, um, it was a three-day marathon that I had absolutely no part in organizing. Um, but everyone signed up for a different hour, and the topics changed daily. Some serious, some fun, some... Um, I read a book for my hour. What would you read? Um, it's called Love You Forever. It's a, ch- it's a children's book that came out of the uh, Dopey Reads meeting that we have weekly. Um, you read the whole book or you read a section of the book? No, I read the whole book. It's no, like, you did not. Yeah, it's like a 10-page children's book. Tommy, uh, Tommy um, recommended it. In Tommy Dope- Savage? Yes. Okay. He recommended it in Dopey Reads, and a couple of people had said that they cried when they read it. Um, and it was a tearjerker, and I took the challenge. So I ordered it and stowed it away until Sunday night and read it. So would you suggest the Dopey Zoom to the, uh, the, the average Dopey listener? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because like I said, it's not just addicts or alcoholics or those in recovery or those out of recovery. It's, it's everyone. It's everyone that appreciates Dopey. Does anyone get high and go to the Dopey Zoom? I don't. I know you don't. You haven't got, Butchie had me speak. TJ had me speak for his 16-year anniversary, which was a, a great moment for me. Uh, a great honor, uh, but that's how I know you weren't high. Right. Like, uh, is anyone ever high in there? I don't know. That no one's like, I'm high at the Dopey Zoom. No, I've never seen anybody come out and say, hey, I'm high. Now, just to catch up the Dopey Nation, Butchie, Butchie had a stellar Patreon. To some people's thought that it was the greatest Patreon ever recorded. I don't know if you've heard that. Well, no, I haven't. Well, I'm telling you, people have said that to me. Okay. I think Ray Brown said that. Ray Brown, big fan of Ray I Brown. think Ray said that your Patreon was better than any Dopey episode he ever listened to. Well, that's, that's stretching it, but I do appreciate that, Ray. But, so, more, Ray's not listening to this, so you don't need to, Ray's, Ray doesn't listen to the show, so you, can't, you can tell him in private, but he's not going to listen to this. Okay. Maybe he will. Maybe he's a closet Dopey listener. But more, more importantly, um, why don't you back up and tell the Dope? like, how did we meet? Like, what was the deal? We met at Katz. I know that, we but met at Katz. we met at Katz. Is were you with Big DS or were you with Danny Boy O'Connor? Uh, probably both. I was probably with both of them, and I had a waiter who only wanted to tell me about his uh, Othello cookie. Dude, Black. I had a meeting. I had a meeting this week with Gregory Gourdet from Top Chef. Okay, he's like on the precipice. Actually, hold on for one second. If you don't know who Gregory Gourdet is, he was on Dopey a while back. He's a uh, on Top Chef, he's a, he's a very, very famous chef, and, and he gave me his book, and why don't you read what he wrote in the autograph? It says, to David, happy looking. Thanks. Cooking. Oh, cooking. Okay. To David, <laughs> happy cooking. Thanks for being a friend and inspiration. Much love, Gregory. Maybe a cookie empire awaits. So, you know what I'm saying? So, you were at Katz's yeah. with Big DS, notable slacker. And, uh, and Danny Boy O'Connor, multiple dopey guest and House of Pain member. And uh, how did you get ensconced in that Motley crew? Um, that was when MCA from the Beastie Boys died a number of years back. They had a MCA day in Brooklyn, a celebration of MCA's life. And I made some artwork. And um, Danny Boy saw it online and he messaged me on Facebook and was like, how can I get a 
copy of that? Are you making copies? And um, I said, yeah, I'm making copies. And he's like, all right, well, listen, uh, MCA day is on Saturday. I'll be in New York on Friday. Why don't you come meet me and a couple of my friends in Union Square? Um, I'll bring you some House of Pain stuff. You bring your artwork and we'll trade. Amazing. Yeah. And you loved House of Pain. Loved them. So, like, that happening was pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. I still remember where I was when I got the message on Facebook. I remember driving on Steinway Street in Queens and not believing that it was actually Danny texting me or messaging me at that point. Well, I think that... that and, then, and then, of course, uh, we met, which is almost as thrilling. Yes. And then, and then another couple years passed, and you, and you had listened to the Lenny Dykstra, and you, and you complimented me, and I was shocked that anyone was listening, let alone you. Yes, Lenny was one of my uh, 86 um, Mets um, superstars. I had a Lenny Dykstra sweatshirt growing up. Um, but little known fact was that I was in the park across the street when Danny recorded his episode with you and Chris. The first I, one. Yeah, right, yeah, the first yeah, one. Yeah. I was across the street with, with another friend waiting for Danny to finish his recording. In the, in the car while uh, Big DS snoozed on my couch. Right, snored, I believe, yeah. Snored on the couch, absolutely. And this episode of Dopey touches a bunch of mental health stuff, uh, which is not the usual. This is not your usual Dopey episode, but I think like someone recently said to me like that the idea of co-occurring mental health disorders is kind of like a misnomer because like what kind of mental health disorders do you need to be a drug addict or an alcoholic in the first place? Right? Right. I don't. It seems that they go together. It, def it definitely seems to be some connection, but it doesn't seem to be like a definite connection. Like, it just seems to be there. Like, me as an alcoholic, like, I've tried to, like, uh, we were actually talking about this in Dopey Zooms, like, what our diagnoses are, what our, what our mental health diagnoses are, because I, I seek treatment for that, and I have for a number of years. And, you know, I have PTSD, and I have depression, and I have anxiety, and then I have my, my alcoholism. So when I, got, when I first started in treatment and in recovery, I was getting treated for all of that at one point. Hold the mic closer to your mouth. Mm. You're going to um, have PTSD from that. Yes. Um, but I was getting treated for all of those at, one, at, the, you know, at the same point. They, they treated my alcoholism. They treated my PTSD. They treated my um, depression. And then um, I would say within like the last two years, the anxiety has, has bubbled up and needed and required treatment. So, like, you had the co-occurring co mental health disorders before alcoholism. Or how would you describe it? How would you put it together? Well, I, I think I always had a problem with alcohol. I think I always drank too much. I think I always drank to excess. I think I never knew how to say no. Um, and I always got in, like, sticky situations, whether it was, like, vomiting on myself or, you know, getting into fights or getting into trouble, that kind of stuff, or just doing dumb things, like nothing hellacious, but just doing dumb shit. And, um, you know, I think the, I think the mental, um, the mental illness came later on with the PTSD, um, post nine 11. I think that's, that's when it, when it kicked off. I think that's when the switch was flipped where I was now dealing with my alcoholism. I knew I had a problem with drinking. Um, but then I also, was now dealing with like these fears and these anxiety and this depression and um, survivor's guilt was like a big thing for me after 9-11 and I dealt with that. And What uh, happened? What was your 9-11 story? Um, I was in my bed at my parents' house. I still live with them. 
Um, back in like, I don't even know, I think it was like the 50s or the 40s, small plane hits the Empire State Building. My grandmother is in the lobby. She grabs a notepad, pretends she's a reporter, and like sneaks around the building. So I get a call from my dad, like, wake up, it's time to go to work. A plane just hit the World Trade Center. And just based on family history, I thought that it was like a small plane, like grandma's incident. Turn the, second, turn the TV on, and the second tower gets hit. So the second tower got hit. I knew it was like a big, this was a big deal. I uh, called a couple of guys that I worked with because I knew it would be easy to bring one car into work instead of multiple cars. And we can get a bunch of us in. So we met up. We brought one car into the city, and uh, I just remember the Long Island Expressway being shut down at the Nassau border. You, you could only get through as a first responder. And you were a first responder. Yeah, I'd been, uh, I'd been uh, with the police department for like a year and a half at that point. Still pretty new, you know, still pretty new. Um, I wasn't on the street in a year yet, you know. Um, but then we went, uh, we went to where we worked. We went to our station, and uh, they put us by St. John's Hospital on Queens Boulevard. And, like, they were expecting mass casualties and people that were injured and hurt and needing treatment. And nobody came. Nobody came for treatment. Nobody came for broken bones or, you know, missing limbs or anything like that. It was something that you either survived or died. Like, there's very few... Injuries from there. There's very few, few people that were injured and survived 9-11. So we stood at the back of the hospital. There was, like, a parking garage there, and we watched all these people line up to donate blood, which I thought was, like, the weirdest thing. Like, that was so far from my mind. Like, I need to donate blood on today because all these people are hurt. But it was like something that just came together organically and everybody kind of got their stuff together and waited online to donate blood, but there was nobody to donate blood to that day. You know, people were, we were several miles from the site on Queens Boulevard and people were coming over, walking from Manhattan, still covered in dust when they got to Queens Boulevard. And they were just coming and it, they would just come in waves. They finally took us away from the hospital and then they put us on the um, Grand Central Parkway, which is major... Um, major highway in New York City, where it intersects the Long Island Expressway, and we basically had to hold traffic except for... No, no civilian traffic was allowed on the roads, and we were acted like a checkpoint to let um, military vehicles into Manhattan. Did that... I, I don't think I went home for, like, the first five days, you know, and then I finally got home, took a shower, um, that kind of stuff, but it was, you know, you in the early days, you worked until you couldn't work anymore. You slept somewhere, either on a couch or on a bench in the locker room, and as soon as you woke up, you went back to work. There were no shifts. There were no, hey, see you at 9 o'clock in the morning. There was none of that. It was just all hands on deck for a little while. And, uh, because it was like a war. It was like, war. It was like, yeah. it was like the idea was, I mean, New York was attacked, and you guys were defending us or representing us or, or you know, serving and protecting us or whatever the case might Right. Be. There was a lot of uncertainty about what was going on, who did what, and what, what had actually happened, and... You know, were there further, was there going to be a secondary attack or was right. there going to be tertiary attacks or stuff like that? So everybody was kind of on edge. For a while. I mean, to this day, people are on edge. And I mean, like, and that's also like where the PTSD sets in. Right. It's like, you don't know what's going to happen at any time. And like, I even just see you clenching up now and talking about it. And like, I wasn't going to bring it up. Like, I just, you know, I like to, to, you know, figure out what the hell is going on. And when you bring it up to ask what it was. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's like one of the things I think is interesting. It's like, you know, my 9-11 story. It's like the opposite story. And, uh, and I never think about, like, I think about you as law enforcement as kind of like funny. 
or like uh, quirky, you know what I mean, or interesting. Right. But like it is what's fascinating is, and this is just me being a fucking idiot, is like your place in the dopey nation, the fact that you are law enforcement, but you're super at home and they're your people, which goes to say that people are just people, right? Right. And uh, do you ever like, the fact that, you know, 97% of the dopey nation are like violating laws constantly, like how does that work? Um, I just, I try not to make myself, um, this is the way, easiest way I can explain it. I never wanted to be known from the day I got hired by the New York City Police Department. I never wanted to be known as Tom the Cop. Never. I just wanted to be TJ. I wanted to be whatever moniker I was going by at the time. I never wanted that to be my identity. You know, I did, it's something that I did, yes, but there was many other Right, you're a very, you're, yeah, you're a very, right. you're a very multifaceted human. You know, and, and I think that... Great artist. Yeah, I like to dabble. Great, great brother in recovery. Yeah. Fucking hip-hop fan. Yes. But I like to... Um, New York City to the... New York State, New York City, Long Island to the core. Um, maybe. Yeah, that sounds great. Continue. Um, but I like to just... I really don't like to present myself as better than anyone else. Or um, I got lucky. I, I, I worked my ass off for my recovery, and I like to, I like to bring that. Um, and I also like to never forget that, like, um, I still need help. You know, I still need help. Like, just because I have t- some time under my belt, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, for, for instance, last weekend, last week I was out of, out of state on vacation with my family, and it was a beautiful week, and it was awesome, and we had a great time. We did a thousand things, and I was with some really good friends of mine, and uh, we just didn't get a day of rain where we could just relax. It was go, 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 go. And finally on Friday, I woke up and I told my wife, I said, like, I'm having too much anxiety. Like, I haven't, I haven't gotten the vacation part of my vacation. Yet. No decompression. Nothing. That's how I feel right now. Nothing at all, right? So it was, uh, it was difficult. And, you know, I had to make a, a choice for my mental health to stay in that day and not go down to the beach and not go swim in the ocean. And I jumped on a dopey meeting uh, on Zoom, you know, because I know from going to them, I, I guess they started going back in uh, Thanksgiving. So we're coming up on a year of me with dopey meetings. And uh, I went in there and they said, how are you doing? Because that's a normal thing as a check-in. Hey, you want to check in? What's going on today? Oh, nothing. Or this. And I said, listen, I'm busted today. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting, you know, and, and this is why I'm hurting and this is what's going on. And, uh, you know, there was a bunch of people in there um, that, really, that really helped me, like, right-size what was going on. You know, and I can... You know, I can get lost in that and I can let my mental illness creep up on me. And, you know, and my mental illness, that's a tricky one because that came out of something that was wonderful. I wasn't in a bad place. I was with my friends and family on vacation. We were having a great time, but I didn't take time for myself. I didn't take time for some self-care. I was still taking my medicine. I was still, um, I had a couple of meetings with some people, but I didn't take time for myself to just decompress it was a lot of pressure it was a lot of pressure last week so i went to that meeting man i felt so good after that meeting so good after that meeting um just to you know just the feedback you get and you know the you know you've said it before and it's been said on the show that the opposite of addiction is connection and just just to connect with the people that are in those meetings and there, there is a, there is a core to it there is a core to the dopey meetings on zoom but it's it's really not like a uh, like you can get in 
like anybody can come in. You come in, you, you're part of the family. There's no like, there's no hazing. There's or, no cool kids. No, I mean, I think we're all cool kids because we're all trying to do something for our recovery. I think we're all in the same boat, whether we're struggling, whether we're working a program. Like, there's always, there's always room for you to be in the barrel. Like everybody takes a turn having a, having a shitty day. There's no doubt about it. And you know, the the point is, is that we don't give up and we keep going. Well, I think I think the great segue into this incredible piece about mental health is self care. Um, I don't do enough self-care at all, you know? I took a shower before you got here, which is good. Linda's on vacation, but we'll talk about that in a bit. The guest today is like one of our first guests that's not even a drug addict or an alcoholic. Yeah, he's a special guest. I I, I really enjoyed listening to to his his interview. Well, like you, he's New York to the core. Uh, I grew up with him. His name is Sasha DeBruel. He started something called... uh, the Icarus Project, and uh, let's just play it. This podcast today is not particularly druggy, addiction-y, and, and minimal on the, the dumb shit, because my, my guest is a brilliant young man who I've known most of my life, the founder of the Icarus Project, the bass player from fucking Choking Victim, anarchist himself, or former anarchist therapist, farmer, uh, very, very, very bright young man, Sasha DeBrule. Welcome <laughs> to the show. I don't get called a young man too much these days, but I'll take it, man. I'll take it. Okay, bright, <laughs> middle-aged, but very youthful <laughs> man, Sasha DeBrule. What's happening? Uh, it's really good to be here with you. Can I call you Davey, or did, no one calls you Davey anymore? No, right? lots we of people. We used to call you Davey. Everybody, oh, okay, yeah, cool. lots of, everybody who knows me from then uh, cannot help but call me Davey. Okay, I'm going to call you Davey. They can't stop themselves <laughs> calling me Davey. Um, and it's funny because calling me Davey was like, I loved it when I was a little kid. You know what I mean? It felt very special when I was really little. And, uh, and we had two other Davids in our grade, and one of them had the same initial last name as me. And so I became Davey to distinguish myself. And also I think I had a book that said Davy this, Playtime for Davy, a Lois Lensky book which was really beautiful. Um and I liked it. But then once I turned 12, you know what I mean? Like I was like this punk, you know what I mean? And not a punk like you were a punk. I was like a, you know, the bad kind of punk. I, did did you ever did you ever feel resentments that people called me Davy? Like who does this guy think he is? Davy? Nah, I wasn't thinking about it. I was thinking about my own stuff. I mean, I feel like I was gone by the time you were 12. I don't think I was even in the school anymore. I was, I was off, uh, you know, at some other school getting into trouble. So I feel like our, our time overlapped from kindergarten through, through, uh, seventh grade. And then that was it. And then I didn't see you for a long time. Absolutely. And Sasha and I went to the same elementary school in New York city, if that wasn't explained and uh, and then like we went our separate ways and but just before Sasha left, he gave me this gift, which was my first ever concert, which was weird that it happened. <laughs> how did how did like how did it even happen? Well, it's, yeah, all right, all right. So we were going to talk about the Brian Adams thing. So yeah, it's 1986, and you know it's before I discovered punk rock or anything like alternative and underground. And I was listening to WPLJ. It was like a, you know, mainstream, I don't even know if it still exists, but it was like a radio station. And, 
in New York City. And I, I was the 95th caller, and I won tickets to go see Brian Adams at Madison Square Garden, which was like a big fucking deal. The Cuts and, Like uh, a Knife Tour. The Cuts Like the Knife Tour, 1986. Yes. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so I took my friend Davey Mannheim, and we went and, and had our first big concert experience. It was which, incredible. My first, and like, I don't think I went to another, I didn't go to another concert until I was like in 11th grade and I saw the feds from, from Hunter also. Like, like that was yeah. my, at the CBGB's cantina. That was my second show. <laughs> Brian Adams cuts like a knife was my first show. And the feds at the CBGB's cantina. Cut to... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I feel like in some ways that experience, I mean, it was, it was awesome. Like, not like I, I mean, I barely remember it, but. I think there was also something about having that experience of being, you know, one person in a stadium and then watching this one person on a stage. It was alienating. I mean, it was like it was part of what like that experience of like growing up in pop culture and, and watching MTV and listening to the radio. It, it's kind of what led me, you know, my I was so. um kind of alienated and and disgusted by mainstream culture that when I discovered punk rock and I could go to shows where there was like, you know, there was like 40 people in a little basement and then you were friends with the people who were playing and then everybody knew each other and it felt like a family and you liked some band from out of town and you could just like write them a letter and they'd write back to you. That, that felt, that felt real to me in a way that like the, you know, the Brian Adams, like live aid era, um, you know, MTV eighties pop culture thing just seemed like a, some kind of scam. Well, it wasn't touchable. And, and that's interesting because when I was a kid, you know, even in those formative years, just before I went to the CBGB's cantina show at age 17 or something, like a lot of that stuff scared me. Like punk rock scared me, uh, rock and roll. I mean, not the music, but the look of it like scared me. Like I remember seeing like drawings of the Beatles with long hair, like it is circa the white album when I was like 12. And I was like, these guys look scary to me. And, and punk rock looked very angry to me, which, which I felt intimidated by when I was a little kid, what drew you to it? And what was the first time uh, you were in the scene? Well, you know, I mean, I like, I was really, I mean, what I could get my hands on as a, as a 13 year old was like the sex pistols and the clash and the Ramones. I mean, like that's what kind of made it through. But hold up, um, hold up because you just described as a 12 year old listening to 95.5 WPLJ and winning us glorious tickets to the cuts like a knife <laughs> tour. And then at 13, you go to the sex pistols and the Ramones and the clash. Do you remember like being like, fuck Brian Adams, fuck uh, summer of 69. Like, how did you discover it? Like who turned you on to just the aesthetic or the music? You know, it's kind of a blur, but I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, the, for me, the big transition in my life was my dad died when I was 13. Right. So I had like a really, um, my dad died the night before my bar mitzvah. So I had this, like, basically my, my childhood and my adolescence are like, there was like one day where I was, you know, a kid. And then the next day I wasn't. And mm. I was, a fuck, I was a really angry, I, you know, I was like, re, like, I, in some ways, I mean, Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, like, I don't know, he reminded me of my dad or something, you know, this like, you know, 
I'm not, how did, how did it happen? It was a, oh, of course. Oh, it's coming back to me now. Yeah. Amanda Sasso, Amanda Sasso, if you're out there somewhere, I still love you. Where she, she was like the first girl I ever made out with at summer camp. And there we um, go. Now we're getting, she had, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and she had a misfits t-shirt and she's the one who turned me on to the sex pistols. And that was it. So yeah, that was when I was 13, but it wasn't really until I was, so I was going to Bronx science, Bronx high school of science. Yes. Um, as a, as a 14 year old and I met these two girls in, you know, out in the courtyard who were punks, like they were punks, like they had, you know, dyed hair and like patches on their clothes and were wearing boots and stuff. And I was like, Whoa, these are like the real, this is like, these are like real punks. And they brought me down one Friday afternoon, one fateful ass Friday afternoon. They brought me down on the subway to the lower East side and, um, to a place called the Anarchist Switchboard, which was like a little basement off of Ninth Street, right off Tompkins Square Park. And I went down into that basement, like walked down the steps, and I was in a room full of teenage punk kids, some of whom you knew, like Carlo Martino. Like he was one of the kids that was Dan Obergon. there. And Dan Obergon, yes. yeah, who was like kind of presiding over the group. Dan Obergon, like, Dan Obergon's a closet dopey listener, so he might listen to this. What's up, Dan? <laughs> awesome. I love Dan. Awesome. <laughs> Dan Obergon yeah. became a rude boy with a bread route. Did you know that? He, he like gave up his punk rock roots, put on like a rude boy hat, and did, but got a bread route at a bread truck. I remember seeing him. Oh, yeah, him. yeah, yeah. I remember the bread truck thing. Yeah. I, I love that. I lo- that was the, ult- yep. the ultimate proletariat uh, rude boy move. I feel like he also, I don't know, got his ass kicked enough times that he started working out, and then he ended up studying martial arts and getting really tough. And like, I remember him teaching the teaching the self-defense classes at ABC No Rio. Nice. Um, but that shit was a long time ago. Davey, that was all a long fucking time ago. Yeah, so the, the anarchist switchboard, it was 1989. I don't know. It was a bunch of kids sitting around, some of whom were like us and were in high school and living with our moms, and some of whom, you know, were runaway kids from other places in the country and were living in the squats. And... um that's how I found my people. I mean, well, that's like that. I think it's really relevant, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, one, in that so many people are so into, like, the, the story of New York City punk rock, like, all over the world. The story of New York City punk rock, even your band, Choking Victim, like, has reach. You know what I mean? And the, the I, I was just watching a documentary about, like, John Michelle Basquiat's teenage years, you know what I mean? And like you see the eighties in New York and it's like, it's just so, uh, one of a kind, you know, like it's so itself. And and like, yeah, when you, when you were going to anarchist switchboard in 1989, it was much better than it was in 1981. You know what I mean? In terms of like, you weren't, you were a lot less likely to get killed in 1989, I think than in 1981 but it's still like it's very romantic and i think um there you know because i think it's relevant for dopey because it was a a scene rife with with drugs right i mean that scene the anarchist punk rock scene i I saw always saw it as two two kind of branches which were uh political activism and social justice and uh drug abuse and kind of fuck you (laughs) yeah yeah and then of course there's choking victim which is like the intersection of those two things if you like you know you look at it closely i mean i i feel like the 
what, like, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of overlap. I think that when you're young and you're angry, um, you know, for whatever reason, because of shit happening at home or because you're, you're pissed off about the state of the world, you're like trying to figure out where to put that energy. Um, and I think, yeah, for sure. Some people just put that into, I mean, some people just put that into drugs and then some people like are a little more social like me and figured out ways to, to get involved in social justice activism, but punk rock for sure. As like a, as a culture, like in the DNA of it, there's a lot of drugs. Um, and, and there's a lot of like, I don't know, an att- like trying to figure out what to do with all the, 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 the anger and energy of youth. This, it's, but it's like, it's, it is just part and parcel to the, to the DNA of rock and roll, which is the same thing. You know what I mean? It's disillusionment. It's anger. It's like, it's like punk rock is basically what happens when you get disillusioned with rock and roll. You know what I mean? Like, like when you get disillusioned with mainstream and you're like, fuck, you know, that's not even capturing disillusionment the way we want it to anymore. I mean, cause drugs and all that kind of stuff that you're talking about is in the, uh, the DNA of, of rock and roll in general. And in fact, uh, Sasha and I like basically we're only in touch through Facebook at this point, but that's still more in touch than we've ever been. So like, um, so like the other day you posted that post about the loving spoonful guitar player, um, which like (laughs) blew my mind really like that. I mean, I, first of all, I don't know how you don't know who the loving spoonful is, but tell the story because I think it somehow it connects to this stuff. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. So, okay. So I I live in Oakland, California now, but a couple of years ago, I was still living in New York. I moved back to New York to, to go, um, I went to social work school and then I was working in the public mental health system and I was working up in Washington Heights, living up in Washington Heights. So one day I'm on the A train. Um, this is just a couple years ago and I'm sitting there. It's summertime. You know, when you're on the train uptown, there's not very many people. And then as you, as you go down the, the numbers, the, you know, the number of people increases, but this guy sits across from me, this kind of old hippie looking guy. And he's staring at me. And I'm like, who is this? Who is this fucking guy staring at me? And then he says, like, "Hey, nice tattoos." I'm like, <laughs> Whatever, man. <laughs> you know, like, leave me alone. Why are you but, talking to me? Why are you talking to me? Like, that's that's not what people do here. Um, you're breaking the rule of how, how people are supposed to interact with each other. But he re- he 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 sensed your old school New Yorkness because he's an old yeah, school New York guy. Yeah. Yeah. So he obviously sensed something in me and he literally, as more people got on the train, he got up out of the seat and he sat down in a seat closer to me. Yes. And he starts talking to me and I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm, I'm into strange. I'm into weird. Strangers. <laughs> this is up my alley. Yeah. <laughs> and then he, and then he tells me that in the 1960s, he was in a band called the loving spoonful, loving spoonful. And that he was in the original production of hair. And I was like, whoa, that's cool. Like Loving Spoonful, that like rang a bell somewhere, but I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't place it. But hair, like, yeah, I know that was like a famous musical or whatever. <laughs> and we're, and we're, we're sitting there talking. And then at, at some point, oh, from, cause if you, for the New Yorkers, you know, in the know, from 125th Street to 59th Street, there's this gap, um, you know, there's in stations. And so there's like on this the long, A train. On the A train. Yes. And, and, uh, and so we're in that gap. And like 
he looks directly at me, like into my eyes, like he's staring at me. There's no mistaking. He's fucking staring into my eyes and he starts singing this song. And, and, um, I don't even know the lyrics to the song, but it's like that famous, it's the age of Aquarius song. I remember no, when the yeah. moon is in the seventh house. <laughs> yes. Exactly. That song. Yes. He's fucking stay. He's like, see, so he's singing that song to me. There's a bunch of other people on the train, you know, but he's like, and I'm just like, God, are other, other people are kind of looking at him, but whatever. But I have like chills up and down my spine. Cause there's something like fucking like really weird about this guy, but I'm just going with it. And then he tells me his name, and at West 4th Street, he gets off the train, and I immediately pull out my phone and Google him, and I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, that wasn't just some crazy guy on the, you know, on the subway. This guy was in this famous rock and roll band. Or it was a crazy guy who happened to have been in a crazy rock and roll band. And, and, yeah, and yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> and totally. He, and you said, you said he, he got hired for hair to give it a true hippie aesthetic. Oh yeah. Yeah. He was like, I was the only real hippie. I was the only real hippie in hair. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you were saying that thing about rock and roll and punk rock, I mean, one of the things that I figured out for myself, like a long ass time ago is that there's this relationship between the underground and the mainstream, that there's things that are like, when I say the underground, I mean like the cultural underground, like the thing that, and what, if it's underground, it means that the mainstream doesn't know about it, you know? Uh And that, there's all these things that you can do in the cultural underground that you can't do in the mainstream because once things become mainstream, they become watered down and they become like, you know, they, they have to be more, um, you know, appealing to the masses or whatever. But so like all the interesting stuff is in the underground, but like the mainstream needs the underground. And there's this like relationship that like, we didn't talk about it yet, but I spent years of my life working on farms and growing food and, I'm really interested in the relationships of plants and the soil and stuff. And I think there's lots of good lessons you can learn about life. Um, and dandelions are like a plant that they send their tap roots down into the subsoil or the underground and pull up nutrients. And I think that there are these ways that like, um, wisdom and knowledge and, um, beauty and art, like that stuff is down in the underground and then it comes up to the top. And so this guy I met on the subway, he was like someone who was like, you know, straddling those worlds. He like, he was someone who came from the underground and then made it up to the top. And that's something that I'm like, I'm really interested in because I'm really interested in culture change. I'm really interested in how, how we change things, like how humans can make the world better. And I often look to the underground for my inspiration um, and then try and figure out like how, like how, like how we can get things from the underground into the mainstream. Well, the, the, there's a lot of things about that that I think are interesting. Um, the the first one is that that dude, you know, that whole tradition was a New York City folk tradition. And I'm surprised. See, as this, because you're like, a le- in my world, you're a legendary New York City anarchist squatting, punk rock, New York City rock and roll aficionado. That's my, <laughs> all right, we had a little little technical problem, but that's my take. And And so I was surprised that you didn't know the, the hippie folk shit because it's so similar to me to the, the squatter shit. They were like the same thing. I mean, I don't know. When I, when I finally looked them up, and- Oh yeah. Hot time, summer in the city. Yeah, sure. I know. But those were popular mainstream songs. I mean, you have to remember that punk rock, you know, in its, in, in its birth was a reaction against like 
the hippie counterculture, the disco counterculture, the whatever. Like there was like there was pe- like there's always groups of people that are going to define themselves in opposition to what came before. I'm learning that now. Like in my work, I mean, I'm I've been around long enough with the stuff that I'm doing that like you know people think that the radical shit that we were doing you know. 10, 20 years ago is now just fucking old or that, you know, right. like I'm, I'm, I'm like an old white guy. And so the shit that I say isn't, you know, isn't relevant. And I feel like that's, it's always going to be like that. And you're so, a youthful middle-aged white guy. Come on. Don't give you, come on. You're not old. You're not old yet. <laughs> it depends on, it depends on your perspective, man. Well, you, like as, depends on where you're coming from. When's your birthday? Uh, uh, December 16th, 1974. I mean, I'm right. 46 so years I'm, old. So I'm a smidge younger than you. No, I'm a smidge older than you, so I don't want you describing yourself as an old as man. An old yeah, I, just, I don't want I don't want that to saddle me. And I was the other thing that I thought was just weird about the Love and Spoonful guy is that he was a serious underground guy. Then he became a mainstream guy, and then he went back into the underground. You know what I mean? Because his his stint in the mainstream was over, but his existence as a underground purist weirdo and as evidenced by him coming up to you on the subway to sing age of Aquarius <laughs> while staring into your eyes, he's still true blue, right? I know it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's, it's such a fucking New York story. You know, I'm just like, wow. Yeah. I mean, we're from, we're, we're from a particularly interesting place, you know, that sometimes I can't, I can't appreciate it as much when I'm there, but when I'm, when I, when I'm not there, I can, I cannot appreciate it a lot more. Well, I mean, that's a, an interesting thing in itself. Like you came back, you went to the Bay Area to enjoy, and, I, and I'm, I'm stepping, you know, anachronistically here because what the fuck, who cares? Um, you came back to New York. Did you come back because you missed it? Did you have a hankering for that old school New York City shit? And then you were like, fuck this. I had such a better life in Oakland or like what happened there? Oh, okay. Here, I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and be real brief and tell you this story because it's, it's like, this is really the only way to tell it. So I'm someone who has been locked up in psychiatric hospitals against my will a bunch of times in my life. Like I've also had my shit together and done all kinds we of, we should have led with that. that. So I apologize Dopey Nation, <laughs> yeah. and to you for that. But <laughs> That's part we're going to circle back to, to serious mental illness and as it, how it relates to drug addiction, but let's go with the story first. All right. So the last time that I got locked up in a psych ward, I was 33 years old and it was, it was, uh, what should I call it? It was Bellevue hospital on first Avenue. And like the police, it's always, there's always a police. There's always like some dramatic thing I'm doing. I was, I was shirtless standing on top of a, a apartment building that I'd snuck into and I was smashing satellite dishes. And mm. I was, you know, I was, I was, I was off on some, I was off on some wild trip. But um, when I got out of that hospital, I didn't know what to do with myself. And I had this friend who was like, hey, I know this place that you can go and you don't have to pay anything. And if you make a three month commitment, you can live there and they'll just like tell you what to do. And it's on the beach and it's in the fucking Bahamas. And I was like, that's great. Like, I will go there. I will do it. And I ended up going and living in a yoga ashram for a year of my life. And I ended up being a yoga teacher and like went on a whole different path. But the weirdest thing about that place was... It was that, in the Bahamas? Yeah, yeah, it was in the Bahamas. There was like this Indian guru from the 70s who had, had all these disciples. And they said there's a... Shivananda. That, that's the name of... Yeah, people can look it up. There's a bunch of them. 
um, in different parts of the world, but there's one in the Bahamas. And the one that I was living at was full of Israelis, which was totally weird, you know, because like, I mean, I'd been around some Israelis a little bit, but not really. And then here I was living in a community with all of these people who were speaking Hebrew to each other. But then we would wake up at five in the morning and by 5.30, we had to be meditating in this temple. And then by six, we were chanting in ancient Sanskrit um, and bowing down to these Hindu deities. Like this was my life for a year. But we were chanting in Sanskrit. And then I was around all these people speaking Hebrew. And I started to get interested in Jews, really. That's what happened. Is I got really, I was like, this is really weird. And I'm, and I'm also like kind of having all of these spiritual, like, I'm understanding things I didn't understand about God from, you know, an earlier part of my life. Anyway, to answer your question about how did I end up doing what, like coming back to New York, I, I went back to college and studied European and Middle Eastern 20th century history because I wanted to understand the Israeli Palestinian conflict. And then I studied, I basically studied Jews and I got really interested in Jews and like where my people were from. And then um, I went to Europe. I'd never been to Europe. And I went to all these places like, uh, you know, uh, Berlin and Barcelona and Istanbul. And I was like, oh, these are amazing places. I want to live in them. But then uh, I came back to where I was from and I was like, actually, the city that I'm from is just as interesting as all of those um, wild European Middle Eastern cities, except they didn't like kill or expel the Jews. There's still lots of Jews in New York. So there you go. That's how I came back to New York. And New York is like the Jewiest of Jewy. Uh, Jewish cities, and and as a Jew who works in a Jewish institution and has very little, uh, I, I mind Jewish knowledge is is pretty limited to be totally honest. What did you learn on this incredible study? Like, why are we chosen? Why are we hated? Why are we funny? <laughs> what did you learn, Sasha? Oh, I mean, I think at the heart of it, like when it came down to it, I realized that that you know. Jews and punk rockers actually have a lot in common with each other. You know, they're like a group of people who think of themselves as outsiders, you know, that think of themselves as like maybe even think about themselves as better than the other people around them um, or chosen, as you say, you know, they um, have a culture that they keep to themselves. They're like, this is, you know, this is our culture and not other people's culture that, you know, they wear clothes that are, you know, have insignias and, and think like that signal to the other, the, the other, the other ones of like who they are. Right. Um, and, and then have like this weird relationship with the Lower East Side of, you know, where there's like amazing you know, physical locations that people gather or whatever. So, but, but that's a long way of saying, you know, I think that a lot of people like one coping strategy in the world for like for a group, you know, is to, to isolate and say, we have this special diet, you know, and the other people around us don't have this diet, you know, and that's that what, that's what makes us different. You know, we're not going to like have children with the other people because we have, we have all these traditions. Um, And I think in as much as I was like a kid who was raised like a secular Jew, like you, you know, the, there was some part of me that was longing for being a part of something that was larger than myself and that some had some history and that was like connected to connected to the past. And like, yeah, I found punk rock and anarchism, but like the, there's there, you know, 
I think in general, it's a really good way of kind of understanding the modern era and the nation state and like what, like how, how groups of people, like how, how like how I, identity formation happens. And yeah, Jews are, I think, particularly interesting um, in how they've, how, how they've, um, like in Europe, there were Jews that lived in all the different um, empires and what ended up becoming nations. And the whole idea of like the Jewish question or what to do, the Jewish problem was what do you do when you're creating a nation state where everybody's speaking the same language and everybody, you know, it's like has like a unified culture. But then you have these people that are like, fuck you, we don't want to do that. We're, we have this network around all the different places and we are connected to trade and like have, you know, we're like, we're, we're isolated. Well, one thing you can do is you can say, you know, these people are the fucking problem and we're going to round them up and put them in camps and kill them. Because <laughs> that's, that's one way, that's a, that, that was like the, the tried and true uh, method that, uh, that, they were, that they were doing. Right. Not so long ago. But, and then did you, did you want to get into this study because of the, you know, like the, the eerie relationship between Israelis and Palestinians and like, and like what is actually happening as opposed to like what people might've been saying. Like, I, I know that like, I don't know enough to even comment on it. All I want to do is make a joke about like a, a punk rock band called the chosen ones where you all have fucking tefillin and, and pay us. You know what I mean? Like that's it. Um, but, um, is that why you went to study it? Because within the world of social justice and, and, and kind of, uh, disrupting stuff, the Palestinian Israeli question is, a incredibly divisive one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there I was in that ashram in the Bahamas, you know, wearing white. So how it worked there was like, everybody wore white except for a few people who wore yellow. And then there was like one dude who wore orange. That was like the, that was the deal. What was the difference? What was the significance of white, yellow, or orange? The the, the, the orange dude was the dude in charge. He was like the direct transmission from God. He was like this big Israeli guy. It was totally weird. And then the, 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 the yellow ones, the people wearing yellow were renunciates. So they were like kind of the equivalent of like monks or something. Right. Um, and then white was just like, you know, you were like the, the purity of God, whatever. That was, that was the idea. But anyway, one day I'm, I'm there in the ashram checking my email and, and I get a message that my old friend Tristan Anderson, who was like a guy I lived with in Oakland years before, had been shot in the head by an Israeli soldier, like on the West Bank. Like he had gone there to protest some, like some issue around like a Palestinian village that the Israeli army was occupying and he got shot. And then suddenly I was like, whoa, I've been hanging out with all these Israelis who've all were in the military, you right. know, and we're all kind of escaping the military. They'd gone to India and gotten into yoga or whatever. Um, and I was like, wow, I don't really know any history. Like, I don't even know, like, why, how the state of Israel, like, came to be or, like, I don't know anything about World War II or World War One or, war, like, any of this stuff. And then that was what kind of, like, sent me on that journey being like, God, I need to, I want to understand <laughs> things in the world. I don't. And then, you know, I want at the same time, I was like having all these spiritual questions about like, what's the nature of reality? And like, what, you know, what does it mean to like, I've had all these experiences that get called psychosis, you know, like all these experiences that are like, um, 
like I told you, like I, you know, there've been times when I was 18 years old, I was walking on the subway tracks in New York and I thought that the world was about to end. Hold on, hold on, and, hold on, hold on. Before we get to the, the, the most important origin story of Sasha de Brule, do you have a solution <laughs> for the Israeli Palestinian situation? Like what oh, the Jesus, fuck, man. what can they do? What are they going to do? What can they do? <laughs> we're not going to, we're not going to figure that out on this podcast. You don't have, you, I don't have not, any ideas. Gonna, I'm just, I figured you probably have something up your sleeve. No. I think that, I think that like lots of things in the world, you can isolate it. You can look at it and be like, what do we do about this issue? It's so horrible, but you can't really make any sense of it unless you look at the countries surrounding those countries and then the rest of the world and the geopolitical situation and like the history. And it's all like it, the, lots of things will have to change for any of that stuff to change. And we here on this side of the world, like, you know, in some ways we're in a good position to like pressure our government or whatever, but that is not, I, I ended up deciding that that was not going to be how I spent my life (laughs) trying to figure out how to solve that stuff. Right. Right. And me too. Me too. And and I think, uh, you know, it reminds me of, of the time, you know, Sasha and I grew up as little kids, like we said, and then the next time I saw him, he was this like cool punk rock kid. And I was still kind of this basic, you know, nerdy preppy guy. And then the next time I saw him, he was working at Barnes and Nobles and he had just had um, this incredibly profoundly scary thing. And I, and I had gotten into drugs when I ran into you at Barnes and Nobles. And I think we were late teens and I was with Robbie and, um, and uh, and I was going a little nuts. I was taking a bunch of psychedelics and I was smoking pot every day. And you told me that, like, you know, that that you you basically got found walking on the on the train tracks. Um, and and like and that was when your bipolar kind of was diagnosed. But do you remember it? What was it like before that? Uh, well, you know, I I mean in high school, I kind of had this decision to make whether I was going to like go like drop out of school and go ride freight trains or I was going to go to college. And I, I had a lot of pressure on me from my family, you know, to go to college. And, um, I mean, what was it like before I got locked up in a psych ward? I was going to read college in Portland, Oregon and, uh, smoking a lot of strong, like the weed in New York, we can talk about the, the marijuana, you know, in the, the late 1980s, early 90s in, in New York City. It wasn't very strong. But when you went out to the Pacific Northwest, it was very strong weed. Yes. And I was and I was drinking a lot of strong coffee. It was the same thing there. Like the coffee was like, you know, it was really strong coffee out west. And the combination of just like, you know, being away from home and smoking a lot of weed. And I, there was some mescaline involved and there was some acid involved. But I basically, um, you know, it triggered for me as a teenager this like, you know, what would get called like a manic episode, which was mean I, I stopped sleeping. Um, I, I had all this energy, though, and I was like running around like a maniac and I had all these like brilliant ideas. I was going to start a food co-op. I was going to like it kind of like that morphed into this idea that I was going to like start my own currency and destabilize the U.S. economy. Nice. Like whatever. I, yeah. <laughs> like, But and then. It was like, you know, it's always New York is going back home. You go back home to like where you came from and then like the demons that were there that, you know, that you left there are there waiting for you. And um, yeah, I had this like very 
um, you could call it like uh, psychotic or you could call it spiritual experience of walking around New York City and finding all this meaning and all the places that I went to and then deciding, like I was convinced, this is after lots of not sleeping, that the world was going to end. And I had this vision that the world was going to end and that we were all going to be broadcast like on television, like the world wouldn't be around anymore, but we would all be on television together. And I, I, I thought that what would this, all the signs were telling me was that I needed to go into the subway tunnels and like get to the next level of reality, which got interpreted later as me being suicidal. But it was really just I was like, you know, living in this kind of mythic realm and i got i i hopped onto the you were exploring you were looking for something else you know it was yeah and please keep going yeah i mean i was looking for something else and also i was i was confused you know which i think is something that happens to a lot of like young people when they take psychedelics because you have these experiences mind you it had been months since i'd taken any psychedelics but you can't unsee that shit you know you have those experiences and you're like okay there's clearly multiple layers of reality and um, I don't know. One way of thinking about it is like, if you keep your ego on, you know, when you go into these other layers of reality, then you think it's about you. So that's like, there's a, a common phenomenon. You go to any psych ward and there will be people who, um, think that they are Jesus. Right. You think that they're like a messianic figure. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you keep your ego on, when you go into those other realities, because you think it's about you, but it's not actually about you. It's well, like just, this is the, the, the universe is enormous. I have a question. I, I have a couple of stupid questions. Um, because, you know, taking a lot of psychedelics around the same age, um, I had a bunch of friends and, and I would joke and say that they were psychedelically uh, traumatized. Um, but do you think that you would have had the break had you not been smoking so much powerful bud and taking mescaline and LSD or whatever? Do you think like it wouldn't have happened? Yeah, I don't think it would have happened. And you think, think, think you would have just before yeah. that there was no manic bipolar whatever. It was just what it was just anger and and a little bit like out of sorts and weird and. It wasn't yeah, and like un, un, unresolved, you know, depression because of like, un, you know, unresolved feelings from my childhood. Yeah. All that stuff. No, I don't think it would have happened if I hadn't done the drugs. I do, I do not think it would have happened. I think, and I think, and you know what, that's what they said at the time, actually. Like when I, at, at 18, when I got out of the psych ward, they were like, okay, they diagnosed me with substance induced psychosis. Right. You know? Um, and so it wasn't until, so six years later when I was 24, when I got suicidally depressed and, you know, I mean, I had a series of hospitalizations after that. Um, and that's when I really got the bipolar diagnosis. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I, I don't think, no, I don't think it would have happened. I, I mean, I actually recently, I actually recently took psychedelic mushrooms for the first time in many years. And I, and I had a friend who came and sat with me and it was like a whole different kind of thing. Like I wore a face mask and put on, um, headphones that were just playing like ocean sounds. Um, and I was under a weighted blanket, you know, like in a dark room. Yeah. And, and it was so wild to like go into that space to, to like step into that, basically it's being like, like in a lucid dream, you know, and my friend was there with me and I could tell her what I was experiencing. But one of the feelings that was so striking to me was like, wow, I really am remembering 
what it was like to be 16 and 17 and taking that acid in Tompkins Square Park with, you know, Seth Roscoe and Brett Leibowitz, you know, and like listening to Rudimentary Phoenix, whatever. Like I've, I had all these memories that came back of being like a punk rock kid and hanging out with my friends and reflecting on it. I was like, holy shit, what a crazy thing to do to take this kind of substance in the middle of New York City, being a sensitive kid already, and then just having all that stuff floating into me, you know, like that. I don't know if you ever listened to, to Black Star, like that most deaf and Talib yeah, Kweli yeah, sure. record. Yeah. So you know how there's that one, there's like that one line where he's like, I can't take it, y'all. I can feel the city breathing. Like yes, that, yes, like, yes, yes, like yes. I, man, I can relate to that so much. I mean, that's my experience of New York City when I haven't slept. You know, it feels like a, New York City is like underneath my skin. Like it's like inside of me. And that lack of boundaries, I mean, that's what those kind of drugs do. They like open up space and then you don't like, it's not clear what's you and what's your friend and what's you and what's like the fucking universe, you know, like what, like, and that can be really important and powerful, but can, it can also really fuck you up. Like if you're not, if you're not grounded, if you're not like solid enough to, to take it. And as a teenager, like with all the shit that I had been through and um, unresolved trauma I had from when I was a kid and the company I was keeping, which I was, I was keeping some pretty wild company, it was not like there was no one to guide me. There it was no one to safe. like help. It me. wasn't safe. It wasn't fucking safe, you know, Davey Manhunt. Yeah, it, was it wasn't not safe. safe. It was not what safe. were we doing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I ever told you this story, but like when, when I was around the same age, me and Robbie and a bunch of kids from Hunter got an ounce of mushrooms and we, we ate it, you know what I mean? And we each ate like an eighth of mushrooms, you know? And we, and we went up to, uh, you know, the, the central park and kind of like, we all sat on this rock outside of sheep's meadow and Robbie had a total psychotic break. Um, and he was sure he was a Jamaican woman. Uh, and he talked like a Jamaican woman and he yelled and I brought one of my friends from college and he was yelling at him in a Jamaican patois and I, I had to take him out of the park and talk him back. You know, it's like, it's like when people talk about psychedelics, not as hard drugs, it's like, they're not hard drugs because they're not habit forming. Right. But they're so intense especially as a sensitive young kid around millions of people and traffic and danger, right? It's so intense. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. We probably shouldn't have been doing that. You know, uh, on the other hand, if we had had guides, you know, if we had had people who knew, like, I mean, I felt one of the things about this experience with my friend a few weeks ago was like, whoa, we're actually really safe. You know, like there was a, there was like a, like there was space to go internal and there's, cause there are all kinds of lessons from those, from that. I mean, like these days there's so many more people. I feel like there's a lot more people who are experimenting with psychedelics, you know, they like where I live in Oakland, mushrooms have been decriminalized. It's like a whole thing. Where do they sell and them? There's this place. I haven't been there, but I hear that there's this place called like, the church or the psychedelic church or the mushroom church. And you get a, the way that they, that they do it is you join, you pay to join the church. And then once you're a member of the church, then you can go in there and you can buy whatever you want. It's, and it's the sacrament. All, it's the psychedelic it's the sacrament. sacrament. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like the other question I have, because after all this stuff, I mean, it's like, 
I, I, I see all of these stories as like superhero origin stories. You know what I mean? Like, like totally. that, that happening to you is why you've been able to do the stuff that you've been able to do and help the people you've been able to help. And, uh, and when you started the Icarus project, like how many, I mean, how many people did you come in contact with, with similar stories and how many people do you, and, and I want to, I would love for you to tell the story of the Icarus project too. But what I want to know is like how many people have a similar story where their origin was some kind of bipolar break brought on by a psychedelic experience or an overwhelmingly potent uh, THC experience. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there. I mean, so, okay, so the Icarus Project started in 2002. I was 27, and I wrote an article for the San Francisco Bay Guardian about being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And um, in the article, I you know, told some stories of stuff I'd been through. And then I talked about how I was taking psychiatric drugs and how the drugs were, you know, like while the culture that I came from, you know, like the, the people around me, like thought all the drugs were, were poison or evil that they seemed to be helping me. And it was very confusing that I was getting help from, from, um, you know, taking these drugs, like this drug called lithium, which all these years later, I'm still, I'm still taking the, taking the lithium carbonate every night. Um, but I wrote that article and up until that point I had only ever written, you know, I had written for this punk rock magazine called slug and lettuce. And so it was like, I would get letters and stuff from, you know, people in our world. But then I wrote that story and thousands of people read it. And my inbox got flooded with emails from strangers who had these wild stories about their own experiences getting diagnosed with bipolar disorder and like, yeah, there were a bunch of people who had similar kinds of experiences with the psychedelics. Um, what we ended up doing was me and Jax. So I, that's how I met my best friend, Jax McNamara, which was like, you know, almost 20 years ago. We, we stayed up all night and we had this idea to start a website called the Icarus Project. And what we said was um, Icarus is the boy in Greek mythology who has wings and who flies too close to the sun. And we said, rather than seeing ourselves as diseased or disordered, um, we see ourselves as having dangerous gifts, like, like having wings, but not knowing how to use them. And yeah, we opened up a space. It was like before the age of social media. So we, we had discussion forums and we had all these different forums. And one of them was called um, alternate dimensions or psychotic delusions. And then there was one that was called give me lithium or give me meth. You know, and that was a that was like a, a place for people to talk about their relationship to illicit drugs and what gets called mental illness, and or even what gets called sobriety. You know what I mean? Like when you when you talk about you know California and these psychedelics and all that stuff, like so many people who are addicts are are, are microdosing as part of their recovery, and then and then some people don't consider people on psych meds sober. Like it's it's such a similar mm-hmm. world. You know what I mean? It's like it's like it's like two sides of the same mirror or horizon or something. You know what I mean? Like it's it's very similar to me, except except that I mean, like it's illness. You know what I mean? Either way, it's illness. People would say addicts chose to be that way, but other people would say they didn't. You know? Yeah, no, it's it's incredibly similar. You know, like we ended up publishing this book called The Harm Reduction Guide to Coming Off of Psychiatric Drugs. 
at some point in Icarus. So one of the things about the Icarus project was we said, if you take psychiatric drugs or you don't take psychiatric drugs, you're welcome to be a part of our community. And if you use diagnostic categories um, like bipolar or schizophrenia, or you think all those categories are nonsense, you're welcome to be a part of the Icarus project. And um, that opened up a kind of space that hadn't existed before. Cause there was like a lot of, there was like a, psychiatric survivors movement or people who had been in the mental health system and, and had, you know, felt like they were harmed by it. But that was seemed like a pretty categorically like anti psych med space, right. you know? And, and, um, and so, yeah, you know, we put out this book that was basically like, uh, there's all of this information in society, like in the, you know, on television, on like, you know, like ads you watch on late night TV and like in the magazines about going on psychiatric drugs, but there's almost no information about coming off them. Right. And so, yeah, we, we opened up, we like start, we like created a a document and then a space for people to start having those conversations. And now there's a bunch of spaces where people are, are having those conversations about the drugs. Um, but back in those days, I remember I had a, I, you know, I was more of a pothead in those early days of Icarus. And I, I had this whole thing. I had a thread on our website called um, smoking weed and taking lithium lets you travel through time or something like that. And like, there was all these conversations about that. I'd basically say that I was like <laughs> regulating my brain chemistry through right. like, like through, you know, THC and, and lithium which I at this point wouldn't really recommend to people, but I'm, you know, like, you know, everybody has their different relationships with the stuff. Um, I, I, I no, well, go, you, you go. I saw, I saw this years ago. Uh, there was a movie about Abby Hoffman, right? And, um, and he was this visionary hippie leader in the late sixties, you know, and, uh, I don't remember the details, but he, he wound up getting arrested for, for something. And he was very, very, uh, polarizing and, and wild. And he got diagnosed with, I think, bipolar uh, schizophrenia and he had to take Librium, you know, I'm sorry, lithium in the movie. And, um, and I know that every time he opened his, they like played some seventies song and and the, the, the montage was him opening the medicine cabinet like, so you see his face in the mirror and he opens the medicine cabinet and he takes the lithium out and he takes it and he, and his life became much more manageable. Um, but he felt like he was sacrificing his superpower for this manageability. That's the way they kind of told the story in this movie. Did, hmm. Is that, is that, does that relate to you at all yeah. or no? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny because when I was a teenager, so when we were teenagers on the Lower East Side, there was still, I mean, you know, there was still like some semblance of that old scene. Like, so sure. Abby, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin were like the founders of, of the, the Youth International yeah. Party or the Yippies. Um, and by the time I came around in the late 80s, there was like the Yippies were like split into two factions and there was the Dana Beal faction and yes. Leaker. Yeah, I and used to go was, there. <laughs> I used to, and it smelled like cat piss, and I would get high with them, and David Peel would come around. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> totally. totally. Yeah, and well, the other faction was the the Jerry the Peddler faction at the Anarchist Switchboard, which was like the ones that I really knew because I hung out at the Anarchist Switchboard. Um, I was but, in the, I was in the wrong faction. I was in the hippie nah, faction, I think. <laughs> but that's funny. But anyway, yeah. keep going. Keep yeah. going. Uh, so yeah, Abby Hoffman, I mean, I looked up to him when I was a teenager, I know, but 
in retrospect, like, yeah, man, that guy was clearly, you know, he was like classic, you know, classic bipolar, um, which you could, you know, I just, I considered, I, I consider him to be part of our extended tribe, you know? I mean, people have to make decisions for themselves about what kind of, like, what works for them. Over the years, I've crossed paths with thousands of people. I mean, I, you know, I, like, ran the Icarus Project for 12 years, and now the Icarus Project actually doesn't exist, and it's called the Fireweed Collective, um, and it's, like, a whole different group of people. But there's still, there's, like, you know, we helped inspire a lot of people to start thinking about things in, in different and interesting ways. But, you know, sure. Are there some people that say, yeah, the drugs like just take away my energy and, you know, make it so that I can't do things. Yeah, for sure. There are people like that. Um, and then there's the people like me who are like, um, the drugs actually allow me to be able to fly because it's kind of like the, the lithium is like, you know, having lead weights that I put on. But what that means is that I don't have to worry as much about flying too high. Right. Because flying too high for me looks like, you know, like running through the streets, being a crazy person, you know, like flying too high is the air thins. You, you can't breathe. You hit the atmosphere and you die. That's what flying too high is. You know what I mean? Like moderating the flight means you get to enjoy flying. Yeah. But also, you know, for people diagnosed bipolar, there's this like, you know, it's like a pendulum. And on one side is like, you know, uh, delusional psychosis. And then on the other end is suicidal depression. I mean, it's like really like, like, and both of those extremes are really awful. But what does it look like to be somewhere in the middle? And what we've said for years, I mean, early on in the Icarus Project, um, you know, like as we were kind of forming as a community, Jackson and I wrote this book called Navigating the Space Between Brilliance and Madness. And what we said was, it's, you know, it's not about like trying to be in the middle so you don't feel anything. No, you want to be able to feel things really strongly. It's just a question of like, how much can you let yourself go there before you swing over into the depressive realm? And so there's ways, I mean, all of the kind of taking care of the basics that I'm sure, you know, for the people out there who are like, like in, like in, in your journey of sobriety, like just being able to, you know, get enough sleep at night and make sure that you eat well and eat good food and that you exercise every day and that you have a routine and that, you know, like, like all that, all that basic stuff is what allows you to be able to kind of build up a strength in order to, um, yeah, to, to live a full life. And so I, I think, yeah, I, I don't know what ended up. I know Abby Hoffman ended up being chased by the law and I think he ended up killing himself, you know, and that's what happens. Like people diagnosed bipolar have a higher suicide rate than any other psychiatric diagnosis because there's a lot of people out there who want to kill themselves, but they don't often have the energy to do it. (laughs) People who are bipolar, you know, they find the way, right. They find the way, you know, Um, it's like, I find it so inspiring and, and, and because, um, when we started dopey, like it wasn't like some movement, you know what I mean? It was for fun. It was like to have a laugh. And and as more people kind of got involved and, and, and my partner died, it became like, well, what good can come of this? You know what I mean? And, and one good thing that really, you know, you're the stuff that you've done and written and, and been a part of and still continue to do 
is so inspiring. And, and I think like it really reminds me of this alt recovery movement stuff we're doing, which, which says there is no right way to get sober. And it says there's an infinite number of ways to get addicted and an infinite number of ways to get out. And we do not shame anybody for any path they take out. And I think that reminds me of what you guys do. And the other thing is that um, like when you, when you talk about addicts, you know, and the importance of living well, you know, there's a whole universe of, of dopey listeners, but also just drug addicts who are dual diagnosed. You know what I mean? You go to treatment and like just about every person who's an addict has some other form of mental illness happening and the addiction was just the way they self-medicated anyway. So it's like we're talking about a really similar population just from the get-go. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think some of the, the like foundational work that is just really critical when you're like navigating these realms is just being able to, to hold the complexity that people get. When you talk about like dual diagnosis, you know, so there's like addiction issues and then there's mental health issues. That's all good. That's important. And the language and the, the, the actual diagnoses, they can be really helpful and they can be really liberating. You know, it can be really helpful to, to get a diagnosis, you know, if there's a clear treatment for it, but there's also a way that diagnosis is, can be really not helpful. Yeah. And we're just living. And especially for young people who are like, just like when identity is so important, like trying to figure out who you are as a person. And then it's like people, young people end up, I see like in the work that I, I I've ended up doing end up latching on to, to diagnoses. Cause it's like, Oh, this explains it. This now I know why I'm fucked up the way that I'm fucked up, you know? And I think it's just important. Um, I don't know. The other, the other day I was talking to a friend who was, saying, I guess it's this old Buddhist parable about how like, you know, to get across the water, you need to, you, you know, you need a boat. But then once you get across the water, you, you, could, you don't keep holding on to the boat and walking around with it. And, you know, you let go of the boat. And I think there's so many things like that. And, and often diagnoses are like that, too. They can be really helpful. And at some point, maybe they're not so helpful anymore, you know, like and, and like we used to say in the Icarus Project, you know, okay, you know, you have a diagnosis of, of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, that'll help you get the services that you need and give you like, you know, the, the ability to talk to medical people about like the treatment options open to you. But just because you have that like diagnosis, don't let it get into your soul, you know, like that it becomes a part of you. Like so much of what mental illness is, is actually just, you know, it's, it's about having a broken heart because they've had hard things happen to you in your life and being able to like recognize that like the, the, the pain and the suffering, like you need to tend to that stuff and not just say like, Oh, well that's because I'm so broken, you know, like the, like, no, like there's also a way that they've done all these studies that, um, I don't know, maybe you've, maybe you've noticed out there, there's all these campaigns, like these anti-stigma campaigns that are like, oh, don't, you don't have to, to be ashamed of your mental illness. You can, you know, like it's, you're, you know, it's like a disease just like any other. But like, that's also kind of a bunch of bullshit because those, those anti-stigma campaigns are almost entirely funded by pharmaceutical companies. And they have, it's like in their best interest to sell drugs. So of course they're, they don't want people to like be ashamed of their mental illness. I think it's just important to remember that like, 
um, we are complex beings and that like these diagnoses are not, they're not hard and fast things. Like this is who I am. Like schizophrenia is a great example. Like what the fuck is schizophrenia? If you look at like the history of schizophrenia, it's like changed its definition so many times, you know, from the time that it started in many ways, like another way of saying it is like, I'll say it like this, you know, when you're walking down the street in New York city and you see like someone who's like, you know, dressed in rags and like talking to themselves and they smell and they're like, you know, waving around their hands and stuff. And you're like, Oh, there's a crazy person. Yeah. Fair enough. But like they're like homeless people, like crazy homeless people are really just like a reflection of the larger society that we're living in. We're all like, they're like a shadow They're you know, and that like, you can't separate out like they're not just crazy. Oh, that person is crazy. It's like, no, the fucking society that we live in is crazy. It's crazy the way people are socialized. It's crazy the way we treat each other. They're the symptom of the bigger problem. Right. And it, and thus, you know, it's like the look, like looking at people and saying, oh, they're like, that's just, you know, that's a person. They're like less than human, you know, or they're just crazy. I'll tell you, like, one of the things I've learned after all these years is that so many people walking down the street, like, are actually really scared of what they have inside themselves and that they don't want, you know, they feel like they're on some level that they're crazy and that they can't actually talk about what's going on with them. And it's much easier to point to someone else and be like, oh, Look how man, fucked that up that guy crazy. is. Well, and, and right. that's, but that's so, again, so similar to addiction stuff, you know, but one of the differences, it's like, Everyone says once an addict, always an addict. You know what I mean? And you say that sometimes it's just defamation. But when I say it, it's just to remind myself that it's probably dangerous if I ever take drugs again. Like, because if I put drugs into the system, I will probably be totally fucked. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm not willing to take the chance at this point. And and like, that's the way I look at once an addict, always an addict. And you have the same people in the street that are just totally demoralized drug addicts, uh, who are also (laughs) dual diagnosed. And it's like the population ebbs and flows and, and, and snakes around each other. And, uh, and all that matters is how to like support each other and, and like have compassion for each other. And like, and like look to help each other because that's a way that we can all have a nicer life. And I'm not a big like uh kumbaya singing style person, but like the fact that you have a community and that we have this community and I bet you there's a lot of overlap, you know, it's beautiful. Hmm. Okay. Well, full circle, like think about where we started this conversation. I mean, like talking about like punk rock and, and like rock and roll and counterculture, you know, I mean, I feel like I grew up, in uh like cultural you like a cultural milieu where there was like a lot of a lot of behavior that would have been considered crazy you know like that but that we kind of normalized i mean that that and that i don't know if you ever listened to that suicidal tendency song institutionalized there's like that famous sign you know like you know, I'm not crazy. You're the one that's crazy. You know, give me a Pepsi. Yes. Right. All I <laughs> the, want is a Pepsi. Yeah. The, all I want is a Pepsi mom. Yeah. I mean, I think in many ways, what saved my ass when I was a teenager was that I was 18 years old and there I was locked up in a psychiatric hospital 
And there they were telling me that I had a biological brain disease, you know, that I was going to have for the rest of my life. And I was going to have to take meds for the rest of my life. But I had grown up, I'd come of age in a counterculture where basically the whole idea of normality was laughed at or like if you were normal there was something wrong with you you know like like in order to be a part of the community that i was a part of you had to be crazy so your sickness was a was a badge of honor anyway that's right and like and and that's what's helped me like at when i talk about i you know like identity formation as a young person that shit really helped me it really fucking helped me and then when i got out of the psych ward and then, you know, met those guys and we started that band Choking Victim and we were playing shows. It was like, I could have, I could have gone in a really different direction. It could have, like, I, I could have spiraled out and I see it all the time because I, you know, I'm a therapist now and I work with all these people who didn't, like, didn't have that. Like, they didn't have a group of, of people and they're way more isolated. I mean, the thing that you find out when you, you know, in the mental health system is that the people there are so isolated. They like don't have friends, you know, and they don't like, and even if my friends were fucked up, they were still, you know, people that I like, I was connected to. And like, as we got older, I feel like I've, you know, I have, I count myself very lucky because I have a lot of solid friendships. I have a lot of people who that's, that's so important. And so many people don't have that. Sasha, what was the thing? What was the Icarus thing about friends as medicine? Oh yeah. So we used to say friends make the best medicine. We, yeah, we put out this, uh, we put out this book called friends make the best medicine, a guide to creating community mental health support, something like that. It was like a guide for people to start Icarus project groups back in the day. But that was the, that like, we were like, you know, friendship is really important. Now it's funny because that, you know, years later, someone was like, fuck that. They were saying to me, they were like, you know, they were all pissed off because the thing is that, you know, your friends can also let you down. Your right. friends can also, you know, your friends can also be assholes, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Um, and not everybody yeah. gets to have friends. You know what I mean? It's like, if you're lucky enough to, to, to put yourself out there around the, the right people, like it's a blessing. You know what I mean? It's, it's like in this dopey nation thing, I think I told you, like, it's a bunch of like totally random people from all over the world. And like a bunch of them are like, I met my best friends from being in this community. Like, and I was like, holy shit. Like, that's the nicest thing I ever heard. Yeah, that is really sweet. That feels really good. Doesn't it feel good to, to be like, whoa, I, you know, the things that were, the, the things that were fucked up in my life have ended up being the things that, you know. It's wild. Like, Isn't that a wild yeah. thing? It, it's wild. It's wild to me. Like, also just like, like, as I try to like, and this is where I like, you know, I'm capitalist swine and I, I try to like make dopey, make me some money. Um, like to make it a job. I'm tired of working in this deli. I, I want to, I want to like, I, mean, I am, I'm tired of working in this fucking deli and I want dopey to be this big time thing. And the irony is the thing that cost me every dollar I ever had, I'm trying to turn into this thing that supports me and my family. You know what I mean? It's like, it's so funny. And, and then yeah. also the thing that almost killed me is now helping other people. It's totally like bizarre. And you're doing the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I ended up. How come your for sure is so not enthusiastic? It sounds like you don't think it's the same thing. Do you think it's the same thing or you think it's not the same thing? <laughs> I, no, I was just, that was like a reflective for sure. Okay, I was, yeah, I was, right, I was, right. yeah, I was like, I was, <laughs> <laughs> right I'm like reflecting on it. Cause I'm like, cause I'm, cause I think in some ways, I don't know when we were talking earlier, I was thinking about that quote from, 
think it's Joseph Campbell, um, the, the, the shaman swims in the water that the schizophrenic drowns in. I don't know if you ever heard that one. No, I didn't. But, but, but yeah, yeah. The shaman swims in the water that the schizophrenic drowns in. It's basically like, you know, the, there's, you know, the, the water is like the, you know, the psychic, the, the, you know, the, the psychic realms, but for, you can either, it's that same, it's those same realms that will either kill you or you'll learn to navigate them and then you can, you can do all these things. And I, and I, at this point, yeah, I mean, my, for sure, that was like, you know, just like trailing off thinking about it. I was thinking about like, yeah, what the fuck else would I do at this point? What would I, what would I do? How would I make a living? I don't even know, you know, like, I mean, I, I spent a bunch of years, um, working to try and make there's like these first episode psychosis programs that are like these national programs and i was working in them to try and make them better for the young people that they they serve and then i decided that it was just driving me crazy and i was going to move back to oakland and and uh you know start a private practice and that's what i do and it it's like i have figured out i have figured out how to make it work for now well, I think it's amazing. I think uh, I enjoy the parallels. And I also just think like there's something to the fact, you know, and I don't, I don't have any way to quantify it. We came from the same place. You know what I mean? We, we grew up in the same, you know, five mile radius and went to the same elementary school and we went totally different routes. But I do feel like our DNA you know, like I'm sure we actually have, you know, related DNA because of where, <laughs> where our families are from. But like, I think just the way we were taught, like affects the way that we are. And I think that's true for a bunch of us who grew up together. And I think it's, it's beautiful. And I'm really happy to know you. And I'm happy that you could come on and tell your story a bit. Oh, man, me too. Me too. No, it's great. It's, it's really good to, to feel the connection with you. And also to like, honestly, my... I think we've talked about this before. Like my relationship with Hunter college elementary school is pretty like, I don't, I don't have the warmest feelings when I think about being a kid at like in that school. Like I, and, and so it, it feels really good to, you know, like I felt like an outsider. It sucks to feel like an outsider in the world. <laughs> you know, you might like, it, it feels good to be when, like when you're a part of something else. And like, I always, I never felt like I really belonged there. So I was like, in and out. I was in and out, but I know what you mean. But now every time you get to reconnect with one of us and it's the right one, you know, I know who I just heard from, I heard from Alana Schofield, who's like this major <laughs> musician. She's like a big I know, star. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're friends on, on Facebook. It's really cool to see. And, uh, and Michael Wolf out of the blue, Michael Wolf. Yeah. I at, mean, out of the wow. blue, you know, and it's very, I just think like, it's a bunch of us grew up in this very weird, very specific way. And I, I, you know, like I, I hear you and I understand that it was not the most pleasant. Um, and sometimes it was for me and sometimes it wasn't, but it was really specific. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah, really yeah, no, was right. one way, you know what I mean? And, uh, and I think I, I'm, I'm happy to have done it because that's what happened. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like I, I tend not to think about shit more than like, I don't think things happen for a reason. I think the reason things happen is because they happen. And like, and that's what we have. You know what I mean? Like things <laughs> happened and, and, and like we came from a place where there were 50 of us, you know what I mean? In that spot, 
you know, maybe there were 200 altogether, but there were 50 of us and, and, yeah. and nobody else experienced that. So I don't know. I, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, one of the, one of the mind fucking things about that, that, you know, that particular like cultural like time that we came from, you know, is that as a bunch of little kids in a school, we were always being told how, how, smart we were how gifted we were you know like how, like and and uh and how important how we were going to do really important things like that was a part of the the culture and i've wondered over the years like i mean in my like ang like psychic anguish and torment how much how much of it is have from being fucking told that over and over the again pressure. But then, the pressure of having to do such important things but then of course I, you know, I've done some pretty awesome things in my life and I feel really good about it. And so who I, knows? Maybe it's because yeah. they told you you had to. That the destiny right. was fulfilled. Oh, God. I know. Yeah. Scripture. Yeah. I think, yeah, go, but, go think, uh, uh, what's his face? Dr. Seidman. And uh, right. the scripture yeah. of, of, of Hunter that you were supposed to go out and do important things and then by hook or by crook, by crazy or by sane and, and by friend or no friend, you know what I mean? It all happen the right way and you got to do that you know it's pretty amazing <laughs> yeah. it's pretty amazing and now you have well, kids uh, coming yeah. and uh and i think that's amazing too sasha like i'm very very happy for you and uh and very grateful you could come on our little show yeah right on right on so that was my childhood friend sasha who called me davy what'd you think about it butchie i thought that it was pretty incredible that Sasha had started this movement, the Icarus Project, um, to address mental illness. And that he would, uh, first of all, I really enjoyed his honesty. And, you know, I talked about the switch for me was like 9 11 was a big event in my life and how that affected me and how that kicked off my mental illness. And to hear Sasha talk about um, when his father died the night before his bar mitzvah. It's fucked up, right? Yeah, but I could, I could almost peg that as like, that's the point. His know, origin like, story. Yeah, his origin story. He was he was a boy, right? In 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 the traditional what the bar mitzvah means. He was a boy and look then, at you. Look at you diving into Talmudic the next, research. The next day became Butchie a man. calls me up. He says Mani Shma when he calls me up. That's right. Anyway, continue. Um but he went from literally went from being a boy to a man as a as a Jewish youth, but his father also died at that moment too. So it really like it pushed him far. I'm sure that was an event that pushed him far and accelerated whatever was going on really rapidly. Totally. And you want to hear the really fucked up thing? I did that interview twice with Sasha. We had a technical problem because I didn't know how to use the machine at that point. Okay. And in the first interview with him, I really delved into that story about his dad and his bar mitzvah. And the funny thing is his dad was Catholic and he didn't even want Sasha to get bar mitzvah. Mm. So like... That was a big piece of the story, I thought. Like, that like, was like, so he, his father's dead and he's doing what he didn't want him to do. I yeah, just that's thought, a big layer. Yeah, I, think that, I just thought that was interesting. I just think all of it is interesting. And uh, Sasha was always just like a great inspiration to me like, because he just he did it his way. He did what he wanted to do. He wasn't afraid of the kid he was. You know what I mean? Like, right. I think I was shackled by like the kid that I had been and it took me, like I said, one of the early episodes with Chris that I think one of the reasons that I did drugs in the first place was to burn that shit off of me, burn like 
quote unquote privilege or burn the cushiness off of me. And it burned me way more than I had intended. But Sasha, I think it went quicker for him. And he, he was all in like in his teen years. And then of course his mental health issues popped up around it. And, uh, and the coolest thing is I thought the parallel between the Dopey Nation and the Icarus Project, just right. like that it's a bunch of people looking after each other. Right. I thought that was pretty cool, too, that for, for what you've done with Dopey and what you started with Chris and where it's gone and to hear him follow a similar and very parallel path with the Icarus Project and that you both were friends as, as youths. Like, that there was there something in the water in lower Manhattan that, like, made you guys have this compassion for other people that were going through like what you were going through was there something there that like where i find it strange that both of you started such movements and were friends as youth like the, I, I i don't know what the commonality was that, that i think we were both like we went to this school that was like super smarty school and we were like on the outside of the super smartiness. And that's why our distinguishedness is this. I mean, do you know about some of the notables that went to our elementary school? No. Fucking Lin-Manuel Miranda went to our elementary school. The guy who did Hamilton. Right. And In the Heights. Yes. The dude who wrote uh, uh, Frozen, the music from Frozen. He was in West Side Story with me. Uh, Max Kellerman from First Take. He yeah, was like, he was, I used to go to parties at his house when I was a kid. Wow. Like it was like a lot of like fancy folk, you know, and like me and Sasha were kind of like not that fancy. So like we've operated this way versus like writing big musicals and plays. And, and, and I, I, Max, I like Max Kellerman is like one of my fucking heroes. He's like a lot of he's a villain. He's like villainous. And like he always was villainous, like in high school, like he was villainous in high school. But he started doing what he's doing now when he was 13. When he was 13, he had a, a Manhattan public access show called Max Unboxing. When he was 13, with the blue background and the fucking phone in front of him. And he, and he was exactly the same. You know, he had this vision from then. So, like, I, I watch Max on, on first take, and I love Stephen A. Smith. And uh, I'm just blown out by that. And Sasha's a hero of mine, too. But, like, these people, like, made a decision, and they just didn't give up, which is what... I've developed way later in life. Yes. Well, that's, you know, it's, it's kind of like that outsider thing, like trying to find, you know, get in where you fit in and trying to find where you fit in and hearing like, you know, Sasha tried a lot of different things, like from one year listening to Cuts Like a Knife and, and going to your first concert and then the next year you're into like the Sex Pistols. Like hardcore. Right. That's, that's, a, that's a big flip there. But he, it seemed like he was open to, like, discovering who he was and what he was into. Did we say, because, again, we did two interviews. Did we say in that interview that he was in the movie Big? No. Okay, that's the other thing. He was in the movie Big, and uh, he didn't have a real part. They, like, mined my high school for kids to be background players in Big. Okay. And, like, you remember in the end of Big where Tom Hanks becomes Tom? He's, like... He's like hanging out in Jersey, like seeing where he should be as a kid. He like goes by the pizza place and he sees the kids at graduation. Sure. Like Sasha's in those scenes. Oh. And, and Linda's brother is in those scenes. And a bunch of kids from my high school are in those scenes. Wow. So it's like, it's like a real seminal coming of age. I don't know why I'm even bringing it up. I just, when I brought it up to Sasha, he like laughed because like to, I was like, well, I was so resentful that they didn't put me in big. Like that would, I think that would have been the coolest thing. Yeah, that was that's pretty. Uh, I mean, I think that's just the way things happen in New York, though. Too, 
Right. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's strange to me that you and Sasha kind of followed the same path on two different things, but it, it makes I think sense. it only would make sense in New York. Right, right. I get it. I get it. Um, so, like, just some things that are happening now, right? We, we just went on vacation, too. I felt the same thing, but I never ask for the time. Like, I never say, can I, I I'm, I'm feeling it. Can I decompress? I don't think I'd be allowed to. I don't think I'd get the decompression pass. Um, it's taken a lot of work with uh, my wife and our relationship. Like, that's not something I knew how to do five years ago. That's not something I knew how to do three years ago. I know that I get squirrely on vacation if I don't self-care. So I make sure that I have to do that. And I, I communicate with, with my wife, and I tell her that. Listen, I'm hurting. I need to take notes on this kind of thing. Well, I mean, it's... It's something that you just you work on and you build. It's not it's not something that like it's not a checklist you can run through. You have to build up on it. And, you know, Jess fortunately knows when I get a little squirrely. She can tell when I'm, are you OK. Do you need a meeting? Do you what are you doing? Because I didn't go to feeling? a meeting either. I didn't go to a meeting for fucking two weeks. I didn't go from a Sunday to two Sundays later. And uh, and then while we were away, because we don't talk about this on the show really at all. But Linda's dad is really sick, and, um, and, and Linda's mom takes care of him. And when we were on vacation, Linda's, they used to come with us to my dad's house upstate, and they couldn't come because Linda's dad is too sick. And Linda's mom was like, I want to go on vacation. And, and, and they asked me, is it okay if they go away when we get back? And like most of me is like, fuck that. Like, what am I? I'm going to take care of the kids, do my job, do everything while you're gallivanting out east. But like, a little bit of reality set in and I was like, go, you know, and, and, and so for the past two days, I've been here kind of doing some Katz's work, doing some dopey work, setting up dopey day, trying to like run everything as best as I can. But, um, I'm amazed. Like, cause like I, I always complain to Linda about how hard I work this and that. And she tells me how hard she's working and I'm like, give me a break. But like, I'm killing myself with these kids. Like, it's like, right now, Susan's downstairs <laughs> watching the Octonauts. Uh, and uh, I feel a little bit guilty about it. Linda doesn't like Susan to even watch TV. So, like, I don't know how she does it. Right. I mean, it's, it's the kids, are, uh, kids are a job in their own. I mean, I have teenagers. Yeah. I like saying, though, like, I'm working and, you know, like, real, like, misogynistic stuff. And now it's like, here I am. Well, I'm letting the children like Nora's at somebody's house swimming and Susan's watching the Octonauts and we're doing dopey. But like I, I haven't had decompression in a while and I I love decompression. I've also been eating, by the way, like all my diet shit is out the window. I've been eating like ice cream, like big, big ice cream, big, like been really big, like okay. the big bowl. Like we bought, you know, like there's the pine of haagen but then there's the bigger size haagen you're on the bigger size. Well, I bought the bigger size because family was coming over. Okay. But I've really taken advantage of that size. And, I, and then you know what I do? Because they don't make a bigger size chocolate chocolate chip. They just make the bigger size chocolate. I bought the Lynch's 60% cacao dark, and I'm cutting up the fucking chocolate chips myself. And I'm stirring chocolate chip, my homemade chocolate chocolate chip with Peanut butter, which is really the best. How is that not self-care? Is it self-care? Uh, How is that self-care when I wind up pre-diabetic or diabetic? Well, it's, it's... Then what? It's harm reduction self-care. 
Right. You're not doing. You're not doing something that could really hurt you. I mean, you, it could hurt you if you keep eating your chocolate, chocolate chip, and throwing your own the chips. Artisanal, and pe- the artisanal, right. the artisanal chocolate, chocolate chip. Yeah, the, the dopey chocolate, chocolate chip. Dude, oh, I, I want to do like some sort of like because this YouTube thing we're working on, and you're going to be a big part of it. We're going to kick off. Just so you know, we're going to kick off the YouTube by reading the daily reflections, and I'm finding I barely understand what the daily reflections say. Okay, that's two of us. Like it's thick. Yeah. It's like thick and like and and not lively or fun. Well, yeah, you got to pull it apart. So, look for that Dopey Nation fucking daily reflections coming soon. Would you like to hear a Dopey voicemail? Yes. Okay. Oh, by the way, you li- Butchie's a big Dopey listener. Yes. So, what is it like to be on the show? Is it thrilling? Um, not that thrilling. No, it it, it is thrilling and um it's strange to hear myself on a show like this. Like, to think that I'm on a show that, like, Andy Dick and Lenny Dykstra and um, Tom, Tom Arnold. Arnold. Right. And people that, you know, Killer Mike, even going back to Killer Mike, like, to hear that I'm on a show that they were on, it's, it's pretty, pretty fucking cool. Nice. Yeah. So you're thrilled? Absolutely. Would you say you're thrilled to pieces or just a little bit thrilled? I'm thrilled to pieces. All right, here we go. Dopey voicemail. Hey, Dave. Uh, Dopey Nation. I just wanted to check in with a short story about my first DUI. Uh, So it's February 2015, uh, Valentine's Day, actually, and my wife was about like six months pregnant, and we had had some plans to go out, but there had been sort of a freak blizzard, so we just stayed at home. And at this time, I was prescribed like benzos, Ambien, I was uh, doing, snorting a lot of dope and smoking weed and sometimes drinking a little bit, but not really. So we stayed in and actually just had like a, a couple beers. I don't think I had any dope, probably smoked weed and it was time to go to bed. So I was a bad insomniac. So we went upstairs. I took my benzo, my, my Xanax, probably like a couple milligrams. I took uh, probably about 20 milligrams of Ambien. I used to snort it. And I'd had a couple bad uh, beers, but I think that's about it. And I got in bed. We laid there for, I don't know, not long. And my wife was going to sleep. And I said, I, I can't sleep. And so I'm going to go downstairs and watch TV. So I got up and went downstairs. And really, I, I was just leaving. So I... Uh, called my dealer and I went out to, to meet him and uh, it's a little hazy because I, I guess I went out and I got dope and I came back and then I did some and I must have ran out because uh, I left to meet him again and initially when I left the second time I locked myself out without the car keys because I'd parked the car outside so I didn't have to open the garage door and so my wife was upstairs sleeping in our bedroom on the second floor, and I was locked out of the house with no keys. So I started throwing snowballs up at her and saying, like, I'm locked out, and she actually let me in. And I, I don't, like, this is hazy, so I, I don't know why. She must have just been half asleep and just did not care what I was doing. I just, you know, probably said, I, I don't remember. I got locked outside. So, you know, I, I get the keys, and I go out and meet my dealer again. And I think something must have happened with the money or something. Because I came back to the house and got a check because I used to pull the scam where, like, you could deposit a check and they would give you credit for a certain amount. 
So I would like write checks from like one bank, like my wife's account to like a, to my private account, which I never canceled. And so I remember doing that and I was driving around downtown in the city. And I think I just part, like I found an ATM for the bank that I used and I just like parked the car in the middle of a downtown street, but it was like three in the morning. So there's no cars around, but you know, I should have got arrested. So then I, I get the money. I meet the dealer. I, I think I bought like 20, 30 bags of heroin. And I'm driving back, and it's Pittsburgh, so there's, like, bridges and tunnels to get, like, anywhere. And I drove across a bridge that leads into a tunnel, and I'm not sure exactly where, but, like, I slammed into the wall, or I don't know if it was going into the tunnel or if I drifted into the wall while I was driving, but, like, bashed the car up real well, but, like, kept driving. And I guess some people behind me had called the cops and reported it. So I come out of the tunnel and I pulled up a side road that was on my way home and I pulled off the side of the road to see the damage. And I remember this and then the police came up while I was surveying the damage. So uh, and they, you know, I, I remember a little bit of this. They were like, oh, you know, what's going on? Asking me the questions and I was so wasted. I couldn't even keep my eyes open. I couldn't communicate. I didn't know where I was or where I was going. I, like, I think, you know, I didn't know that there'd been an accident or, you know, what had happened to me. So they put me in, put the handcuffs on and throw me in the back of the car. And that's the last thing I remember. It's total black. And the next thing I know, I'm like walking out of a police station. My wife is taking me out. Uh, and bear in mind, she's like six, six, seven months pregnant at this time. So it's making everything so much better. And, you know, we go home. And so when the police were, I guess eventually, you know, she had called around to my friends and, and you know, couldn't find me at like five, six in the morning. And then eventually she called the police. The police called her. I can't remember. And so she came down and had to pick me up. And so they were like, yeah, here's his belongings. And uh, they gave me my wallet back. My wallet had this like gigantic bulge in it. Like it was so obvious. My wife's like, and of course, there's like 20, 30 bags of heroin in there. And the police never found it. I, I don't know how they didn't find it. They gave her it back to me. And, you know, we went home and I passed out. And, you know, that was the car was wrecked. And I eventually I really didn't get in too much trouble. It was my first time ever getting in trouble. So, you know, I took some DUI classes and they basically just went away. Uh, the car was totaled. We had to get a new one. That was actually the third brand new Hyundai Elantra that I had crashed that month. Um, and, you know, amazingly, I, I didn't go right into treatment. I passed out at work shortly later and it, they sent me to rehab. And, uh, you know, I, I relapsed a billion times. It did not take, but uh, I'll have four years this September. So, um, you know, if any, anyone could do it, I can. Uh, Anyway, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. I love that story. That's I, a good one. The irony of, uh, of listening to the story with law enforcement where they don't find the 30 bags. I still, I'm like, yes, he got the wallet back with the 30 bags in it. I'm like thrilled for him. It's amazing because I, I, that's not the first time I, I hear that more frequently um, that I don't, that they, they missed it or they didn't find it. And it's either lazy don't know what they're doing or they know exactly what they're doing and they just don't want the paperwork. Right. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. But I'm proud of this guy. This is John and I'm proud of John. He has four years. So yeah. I'm going to play the congratulations, John. Thank you for the, the voicemail. And I appreciate, uh, appreciate 
everything the Dopey Nation does. I cannot thank you guys enough for being a part of this thing. Like, I'm almost like in denial that it even exists, but uh, I am so proud and grateful for everything that you guys are doing and the fact that Dopey Zoom is happening and an upstanding member of the Dopey Nation like Butchie, who's 16 years and gets so much out of it, like that means something. So thank you for that, Butch. Anytime. Mr. TJ. Anytime. And fucking, dude, I, I mean, like, I don't know. Like, this show is a different kind of show, but I'm very, very proud that we get to put it out. I yes. feel good. It's a good one. And I uh, love Dopey Day. I, I gave myself a break. I didn't go nuts with Dopey Day. Last year, I went crazy with it. I like I went to I went to town. I wrote every celebrity. Would you put the dopey logo over your eyes? And if they didn't get back to me, I wanted to kill myself because like I was scared they didn't like me. And like so this year I was like fuck it. I'm not asking for shit. I'm not doing it. Like whatever happens happens. And I didn't have a heart attack. Yeah, it was good though. I saw Amy. Amy Dresner put her eyes up. Dopey yeah. Dres. Yeah, she's true blue. Yes. So uh, anything you want to say before we go? Um, thanks for having me. Dude, it's a pleasure. Yeah, it was good. I'm glad to be here. All right. We'll do this again. We'll do it again. Okay. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and uh, fucking toodles for Chris. Toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this aeroplane just pass me by and I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller and it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had and these suckers make me mad and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had 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 and these suckers make me mad and it's all I ever had and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had